0: Good evening. This evening we continue in Second Chronicles, and uh, we find ourselves in chapter 12 of Second Chronicles. But before we go there, you can turn there. I'm going to read a scripture from First Kings that sort of summarizes what was going on in Israel at this time, in the northern and southern kingdoms. It's in 1 Kings that I'm going to read from as we start, 1 Kings chapter 14, just a couple verses. We read there concerning Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, who we started to talk about last week. We read there that Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. These are the places of idolatry at that time. And then we read something really disturbing. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And so from a different book, a parallel book, but a book that tells us a little bit about the reign of Rehoboam, we learn there was quite a bit of evil in that country, in that land at that time. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we feel sometimes as if we're living in a nation and in a country like Israel at that time. With all the debauchery and the evil and the wickedness and the calling evil good and good evil. And all the confusion, when there really isn't any confusion, just a lot of confused people acting as if they're not. But Lord God, we pray as we study your word that we would be inspired and encouraged to humble ourselves before you to seek your help, not only for our own lives, but the nation we live in, the culture we're a part of. Lord God, we desire not just to experience holiness in the church and among the family of God, but in our world, if that's possible, Lord. We know that it it won't be just right until you return, but until then, Lord, may we see revival. May we see an awakening in our land of spiritual principles. We know that you're in control of all things, and we thank you for that. We ask that you would continue to work in our land and in our nation and that you would touch the hearts of those that have rejected you and deliver them from their sins forgive them and bring them your grace and mercy which they can only experience in the person of jesus christ through a relationship with him lord we ask these things in jesus name amen well as we've seen already just in this opening scripture rehoboam allowed the people of judah to descend into great wickedness now as goes the leader, so goes the people. We've seen it before, we'll see it again. If a leader stands for righteousness, people may hate him, they may dislike him, but he still becomes the standard bearer for what's right. And if a leader decides to lead a nation in the direction of wickedness, like our leaders today, Well, God doesn't hold the righteous accountable for the wicked's actions, but sometimes we experience the chastisement of the Lord on a culture even though we ourselves are not participating in the wickedness of that culture. And as you see those things, it really proclaims the faithfulness of God. For God would be unfaithful if he didn't bring consequences into the lives of those leaders and the nation they lead In order to bring them to repentance and bring a nation to its knees in humility before God. That's what I believe we are experiencing in our culture today. I don't believe that God has completely forsaken us as a nation. I don't believe the United States of America is forsaken. I believe we're being chastised because of the things maybe a small majority who are in power promote and try to indoctrinate in the hearts of our children and through the media God sees it. God knows it. He knows it's as wicked as you and I know it's wicked. And he allows it to continue according to his purposes. But judgment comes and consequences come. And God is going to do his work and his best work in the hearts of those who open their hearts to him in such a time of wickedness. So we have to trust God. We have to remain hopeful and know that God is faithful. Amen? But it's hard, it's difficult, and it must have been difficult living during the time of Rehoboam as well. We learn there, they served—that that is the people which he allowed to descend into wickedness, the people served the gods of the idolatrous nations surrounding the kingdom of Judah. They engaged in all the detestable practices of the Canaanites, who were the people who lived there in the promised land before the Israelites conquered it. They were a culture that was given over to idolatry, sensuality, and sexuality. They even established homosexual prostitution within the land of Judah, we're told. And the culture had degraded even further since the time of Solomon. So things were pretty grim. And yet God was going to allow consequences, severe consequences, in order to turn the hearts of God's people and their leader back to him. In fact, we know that the Lord allowed Shishak, king of Egypt, to humble the proud Rehoboam. Read with me. We're going to read together Uh, in chapter 12. I'll read it for you. In verses 1 through 12, we read about this, that after Rehoboam's position as king was established and he had become strong, he and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. I feel like that. In our nation today, I feel like we've abandoned the law of the Lord as a culture. Well, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of King Rehoboam with twelve thousand—excuse me, twelve hundred chariots and sixty thousand horsemen—and the innumerable troops of Libyans, Sukites, and Cushites. They came with him from Egypt, and he captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah, who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. And he said to them, this is what the Lord says, You have abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak. That's a very interesting pronouncement. You have abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak, which was a foreign king conquering parts of their nation. I can easily see this in our nation today, and yet it was the hand of God at that time. It's the hand of God today. We have abandoned him. We've abandoned the law of the Lord, again, as a culture, and sadly, many churches have as well, so-called. And therefore, I believe God has abandoned us. Now, when I say abandon us, he hasn't abandoned his people, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He hasn't abandoned the church, and he hasn't abandoned or despised or cast off the United States completely. But in many ways, we are experiencing and suffering the consequences in our nation of abandoning the law of the Lord and abandoning a relationship with him. When I see inflation through the roof at a over 40-year high, when I see our border completely overrun by illegals and drugs and cartels and human traffickers, when I see all the political problems we're facing in our nation today, the unrest, the wickedness, the illegal leaks and all of the things that are taking place in our culture today, it's very easy to look at the liberal parties and progressive parties and blame them, but you know something, wicked people will just do wickedness until the end comes. The truth of the matter is is that God is allowing us to experience the consequences of our actions as a nation. He is. And that's a good thing. Imagine if he didn't. Imagine if things were just wonderful as the White House and our Congress is promoting transgenderism and gender confusion and misinformation and censorship. Imagine if everything was going wonderfully in our nation, which isn't hard to imagine if you just go back a couple years, But imagine if all that was going wonderfully and all of these wicked things were happening. No one would notice. But see, now we look and we say, well, what's happening? What's happening? And We look at our nation and we say, well, we've abandoned the law of the Lord. We've abandoned his ways. No wonder we're suffering. And I think that it's important to recognize the hand of God in every nation that abandons him and his law. I'm encouraged. Oh, I'm not encouraged by the fact that the oil guys came to fill up my tank today and it was $1,000. I'm not encouraged by that. I'm not encouraged when I fill up my tank at the Costco, which is a lot lower than some of the other gas stations. I'm not encouraged when I see those prices at the grocery store. But I'm encouraged to know that God hasn't completely abandoned us because he's allowing us to suffer the consequences of wickedness as a nation. That means there's hope. Because you see, when there's no hope, when it's over, we're destroyed. When God completely abandons a nation or despises them in wickedness, they get destroyed. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Or the world of the, before the flood? We're not there yet. I know it seems like it sometimes, but we're not. And that's encouraging to me, to know that these consequences are actually softening hearts And hopefully changing lives as people realize the truth of God and his word. But what we learn there is very important about what was happening at that time. Yes, Rehoboam and all Judah abandoned the law of the Lord. And Shishak attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of Rehoboam's troubled reign. Look what it goes on to say in verse 6. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. You see, that's what happens when you experience wickedness in a culture at a severe level. There's an opportunity. I'm not saying it always happens, but there's an opportunity for the nation to humble itself, for the people, even the leaders, to humble themselves and seek God. And that's what I pray for every day, all the time. Well, let's go on. We read, that when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. You see, they were very close to being destroyed. But the consequences brought them back from the brink. And God showed mercy. He says, My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. When Shishah, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem, he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including the gold shield Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. And whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards went with him, bearing the shields. And afterward, they returned them to the guard room. And because Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned from him, and he was not totally destroyed. Indeed, there was some good in Judah. Oh, I'd love to see that. We we call that an awakening, not a revival, an awakening. And there's a difference. An awakening almost always comes out of a very difficult and trying time in a nation's history. I've shared this before, the great awakenings we experienced in our nation came right about the time of the American Revolution and the Civil War. And they were great awakenings of spirituality, but they came at very tumultuous and difficult times. So that tells me we're poised for an awakening. And you might say, well, Pastor Tim, awakening sounds great, but how about a revival? Well, revival is when God's people turn back to him. An awakening is when a culture decides to turn to God. And that's really what we need. More than a revival, we need an awakening. But it does often come at the expense of very tumultuous, difficult, and trying circumstances. So check that box because we're going through them right now. So we're poised for an awakening in this nation. And I think we're already seeing it. I think we're seeing it in a great way. And that doesn't mean everything's going to be wonderful and perfect. It just means that there are opportunities for people to come to know Christ in the midst of these challenging and difficult trials. Amen? Amen. And that's good. That's a good thing. Well, as we've read and as we've seen, Shishak attacked Jerusalem. He was a native of Libya. And a former ally of his enemy, Jeroboam, king of Israel, now king of Israel. He had overthrown Solomon's father-in-law. Remember, Solomon had married the daughter of Pharaoh. And he had created a new dynasty in Egypt. It was a different people, different group of people ruling in Egypt now. So there was no alliance between the current dynasty in Egypt and the leadership of Judah. Shishak captured the fortified cities of Judah and threatened Jerusalem. And so this prophet Shemaiah declared the Lord's judgment against Judah. But they humbled themselves. Pray that God would humble these fools leading our nation, these ridiculously horrible individuals who promote evil. There's hope for them if they can be humbled. And if they're not, then perhaps they'll be destroyed. That's God's business. But humbled would be good. They humbled themselves before the Lord and accepted his just punishment. I like what it says there. It says, the Lord is just. In other words, we're just getting what we asked for. The Lord is just. They understood that. And so, the Lord responded by sparing them from the destruction of Shishak, and the Lord allowed them to become subject to Shishak instead. That was a far better circumstance than being destroyed. But Shishak plundered the temple. Anytime an army marches out, it costs money. And so you have to figure out a way to pay your troops. And so if you've marched out, you've conquered, if you're going to have peace, you have to be compensated in some way. And so they plundered the temple and the royal palace as tribute to, to spare the kingdom. And Rehoboam replaced the gold shields of Solomon with inferior bronze shields. That's said, because just recently we studied on Wednesday evening how Solomon had made these beautiful gold shields, many shields to to decorate the palace, but they had to be used to pay tribute to Shishak, king of Egypt. You know, it makes me think of the coinage in our nation. Now, some of you guys collect coins, and some of you are more or less familiar with them, but for example, in 1964, the half dollar, even the quarter and the dime, I mean, they they were silver. It's interesting because after that, some of those coins had some degree of silver, but they, they were made out of inferior metals, like copper or nickel. They were no longer made out of those precious metals of silver. And then the gold coinage for a while wasn't even made in our nation. There used to be a time where, you know, an ounce of gold was $20. <laughs> not anymore. Certainly not. Quite a bit more than that. And, and you know, it just goes to show you, though, when, it, when a nation is healthy financially and being blessed by God, Precious metals generally are lower. But when that nation has fallen into decay, into a decline, precious metals go through the roof. Anyone who knows anything about commodities and precious metals knows this to be true. It's because those precious metals have value apart from and aside from the economy. And so you look at our precious metals today. They're trading very high because there's a lot of insecurity about our culture. That's an indicator that we're not where we're supposed to be. But you know, you can replace uh, silver and gold coins with copper, but who wants copper? Even copper's expensive. <laughs> Try putting in copper pipe. But it is amazing to me. You just see the decline of a nation, and that's what happened. There was a time where we read it recently where they said they didn't even use silver because silver was as common as stones. And now they've lost all those gold shields. Just kind of gives you a, a feeling for how things were going in that nation at that time. But they did humble themselves. And Rehoboam replaced those gold shields, but Rehoboam also humbled himself. And the Lord spared him, resulting in good in Judah. And again, I pray for that all the time in our nation. Well, we learn a little bit more. About Rehoboam, which we haven't learned in this book just yet. In verses 13 and 14, we learn that King Rehoboam established himself firmly in Jerusalem and continued as king. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city of the Lord, uh, the city of the Lord had chosen out of the tribes of Israel in which to put His name. His mother's name was Naamah; she was an Ammonite, and he did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. Now we learn a few things about him here. He ascended to the throne of Israel as a man of very wicked heritage. Okay, he was 41 when he became king. He reigned for 17 years, but his father Solomon had rebelled against the Lord by marrying his mother, Namau, which in Hebrew means lovely, but she was an Ammonite, an enemy of Israel, a wicked idolater. This begins to help us to understand why this man was not following after the Lord. It was against the law of Moses to marry an Ammonite, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. Neither of his parents, neither of his parents, including Solomon, were able to provide him with a legacy of faithfulness to God. And so parents, as you're providing your children with a legacy of faithfulness to God, what that means is you're teaching them the truth and living the truth as best you can. You're giving them that legacy. All you can hope for is that they choose to follow in your footsteps, but it's still their choice. Think about it. God didn't make Adam and Eve choose what he would have them choose. He gave them free will. And you think about Jesus had those 12 apostles and one of them made a bad choice and others made choices that were questionable along the way. We do have the ability to make bad choices and good choices and to be blessed for our good choices and suffer for our bad choices. And children will do the same. But if they don't have a legacy of faithfulness to God, one wonders whether they have the ability to choose what's right. And so that's why that's so important. This man apparently wasn't given that. He did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. And when people do evil, you can just say it. They're not setting their heart on seeking the Lord. Well, then we learn about his death in verses 15 and 16. As for the events of Rehoboam's reign from beginning to end, are they not written in the records of Shemala, or, excuse me, Shemaiah, the prophet, of, and of Edo the seer that deal with genealogies? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, and Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. We'll read about Abijah in just a minute. So the record of all of Rehoboam's other accomplishments has been preserved. Some of those books are not with us, but others are. The Book of First Kings, which we read from already, records Rehoboam's reign as king of Judah, and the books of the annals of the kings of Judah is First and Second Chronicles, at least it quotes from those books. And so we have those records. There are two other historical works from this time period mentioned here. One is the record of Shemaiah the prophet, which we do not have, and the records of Edo the seer that deal with genealogies. I'm glad I don't have to teach that book, because when we were going through 1 Chronicles and I had to go through all those genealogies, I'll tell you, it was a challenge to get through it, but we did. The beginning of his reign was filled with pride and foolishness, as we saw last week. He had caused the strife with the northern tribes that resulted in their rebellion against him, and his actions caused the kingdom of Israel to be permanently divided into Judah in the south and Israel in the north. So not a great legacy for those 17 years he was king. Uh, The end of his life was filled with strife and failure. He fought continually with Jeroboam, king of Israel, and there were probably repeated border disputes between them, and these would have taken place within the buffer zone of the tribal area of Benjamin, so they were in a constant state of conflict or war back and forth. I think of Korea, which is a divided peninsula. And you have this demilitarized zone, you know, you have this area between North and South Korea, and they're just in a constant state of war, and have been for decades, for years and years and years. And that's what it must have been like for those 17 years. Well, the end of his life, as I've said, filled with strife and failure, he lost much of the treasure and splendor of Solomon's reign to Egypt. And Rehoboam died knowing that he, and he alone, was personally responsible for the division of the Kingdom of Israel. Of course it was God's judgment against Solomon for his wickedness but still Rehoboam made his choice. He rested with his fathers in Sheol waiting for the coming judgment. He was heavily influenced as we've seen by an Ammonite mother that brought him to ruin and then Abijah succeeded his father Rehoboam as king of Judah. Now we'll talk about Abijah and then we'll close this evening. Abijah the son of Rehoboam king of Judah. We read about his ascent to the throne in chapter 13, verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. We read there that in the 18th year of the reign of Jeroboam, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Maha, a daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. It goes on to say there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. So there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and now there's war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Now, things are going to turn out a little bit better for him, but... The the nation was in a state of conflict, and I can tell you, it's hard to remember a time when we were not, as a nation, in a state of conflict. Clearly, I think we can go straight back to 2001, since 9-11, and say we've been in a state of conflict ever since, and there were conflicts before that, but there was a time, perhaps 80s, 90s, where we didn't have the same level of conflict that we have at the moment. And we didn't have the same level of vitriol and division that we're experiencing now either. And it's, it's easy to see that since 2000, we've just been experiencing the consequences of sin in our nation. And that's why we're tearing each other apart. That's why we're divided. That's why there's no civil discourse. That's why there's no, uh, no peaceful protests, only riots. This is why we're living in the country and in the nation we're living in right now. And it's because of sin, so how do we fix everything? Well, you know, the Fed comes out, they raise interest rates at half a point, which is great for people who have money, by the way. Not so great for people who don't. But how are they going to fix it? Oh, everybody has all these ideas. That I can tell you how we can fix our nation. We need to humble ourselves before Almighty God and ask for forgiveness. Can I hear an amen? That's it. Oh, Pastor Tim, how can you say that? Oh, you're so archaic, you're so... Ridiculous to say such a thing. Well, I don't know. I mean, history has borne out more times than not that when you offend God and disobey His word, you suffer for it. Just the consequences of disobedience, let alone God's consequences that He brings into our lives as a nation to bring us to repentance. I would love to be on the other side of that. I would love to be in a place where we're experiencing God's blessings for obedience. You can experience that in your own life. We can experience that within the church. You can experience that in your family. But in our nation, it won't be experienced until we as a nation repent. So we're going to see some of the blessings that God allowed to take place. Even though this man was not a very good man, God was still faithful to his people. Remember, they had humbled themselves. Well, Abijah, whose name means Jehovah is my father, reigned as king for just three years. He was the great grandson of David and the grandson of both Absalom and Solomon, so he married a second cousin. His father was Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and his mother was Makah, the daughter or descendant of Absalom and Uriel of Gibeah so uh, we 're not sure if she was really the daughter or the granddaughter, but she was a descendant of Absalom Abijah 's relationship with the Lord really isn 't covered in second chronicles, but it is mentioned in First Kings, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses so you can get a, an understanding of what this man was like spiritually. In First Kings chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, this is what the writer of the book of 1 Kings tells us. That he committed all the sins his father had done before him, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as, as the heart of David his forefather had been. Nevertheless. For David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. You see, that's just God's mercy. That was the response to their humbling themselves. Even though the leader was a wicked man, only lasted three years. I hope that's a prophecy, to be honest. But, you know, even though this was a wicked man and that this nation had no choice but to humble themselves... God was faithful to his people. And God will always be faithful to his people as they humble themselves. So that's our hope. Our hope isn't in our leadership, clearly. It's in God's mercy and his grace toward his people as we humble ourselves before him. Well, anyway, hopefully that's encouraging to you. Uh, We learn there, it goes on to say that God made Jerusalem strong. But for David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. So, yes, things were not perfect, but they had certainly gotten better. God was blessing his people because many had humbled themselves. Now, he was not fully, this man, Abijah, was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. He was heavily influenced By the ungodliness of his parents. But he did not follow the example of his forefather, David, either. The Lord showed him mercy, but for David's sake. You see, when God shows us mercy, he shows us mercy for Jesus' sake. Amen? For the son of David's sake. When we're shown mercy, and I'm shown mercy every time I draw breath, when we are shown mercy by God, it's because of Jesus it's not because of you. It's not because of me. It's not because we, we obey God's word. Because we don't. We fail to obey God's word. And if you fail in one point, you violated the whole law, Paul says. So we have failed to be the kind of people that God has called us to be. Yet we are blessed because of God's mercy through Jesus Christ. Amen? It's kind of a picture of how we're blessed through Jesus, even though he was blessed because of his father or forefather, David. Well, the Lord showed him mercy for David's sake, and God raised up a son to succeed him and strengthened the city of Jerusalem during his reign. By the way, you're going to see this as we go through the book of Second Chronicles. David is the standard by which all the kings of Judah and even Israel are measured. The gold standard is David. But we're told he wasn't perfect. In fact, far from perfect. He had a man murdered because he slept with his wife. Then he stole his wife after having committed adultery and murder. And yet God saw him as a man who was devoted to him. What does that tell you? That it's possible to be fully devoted to God and fail. It's not an excuse for sin. No one's making an excuse for sin. But let's be honest we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. And yet we can be fully devoted, wholeheartedly devoted to God. And that's what we should aspire to to be like David. He was fully devoted to the Lord as God. With only that major failure in his past, he lived his life for God. And as we've said already, there was war between Rehoboam, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, king of Israel, throughout his lifetime. So the whole time that Abijah was alive, even when he wasn't king, when his father was king, all he knew was war. All he knew was war. We have some young people here today that did may not even have been around, perhaps, uh, to remember times of peace, because we've been at war for such a long time, right? In one place or another, whether Afghanistan or Iraq or... It's just, you know, that's just the way it is. But Abijah's reign and death is covered in the next few verses of this chapter. We're also told, and we've read it already, that there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. So he just kind of picked up where his father left off throughout his entire reign of three years. but Abijah confronted Jeroboam and the army of Israel on the battlefield, and we're going to read about that right now in verses 3 through 12. In verses 3 through 12 of chapter 13, we read that Abijah went into battle with a force of 400,000 able fighting men. and Jeroboam drew up a battle line against him with 800,000 able troops. While Abijah stood on Mount Zemaraim in the hill country of Ephraim and said, Jeroboam and all Israel, listen to me. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingdom, excuse me, given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, son of Nebat, an official of Solomon, son of David, rebelled against his master. Some worthless scoundrels gathered around him and opposed Rehoboam, son of Solomon, when he was young and indecisive and not strong enough to resist them. And now you plan to resist the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hands of David's descendants. You are indeed a vast army and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made to be your gods. But didn't you drive out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and make priests of your own uh, as the peoples of the other lands do? Whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may become a priest of what are not gods. As for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. The priests who serve the Lord are sons of Aaron, and the Levites assist them. Every morning and evening they present burnt offerings and fragrant incense to the Lord. They set out the bread on the ceremonially clean table and light the lamps on the gold lampstand every evening. We are observing the requirements of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. God is with us. He is our leader." His priests with their trumpets will sound the battle cry against you, men of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. It's it's pretty bold words. For a guy who wasn't fully devoted to the Lord, he seems to be a little bit more devoted than his father was. Perhaps that time of humbling, had really worked in his heart. Not completely, but certainly to some degree. And so we learn that Abijah tried to achieve peace, and he's trying to do this through political diplomacy. He gathers there. He's not talking just to talk. He's hoping to avoid the conflict. And so he mentions a covenant of salt. By the way, salt had a ceremonial use in the ratification of treaties. And so that's a cultural thing, a historical thing, and that's why he mentions salt. It stood for faith and loyalty and made the treaty permanent and unbreakable because salt was representative of that. That's why he mentioned it. One of the things he did, he openly criticized Jeroboam's rebellion against his father, Rehoboam. You can understand why he might feel that way. He rebuked Israel for their new idolatrous religion and their illegitimate priesthood. He testified to the faithfulness of the God of Judah and their legitimate priesthood. And he warned Israel that they would not succeed in battle against the God of Judah. And so here's an opportunity for them to respond And everything that Abijah said is true. They had walked away from the Lord. They had no confidence in God protecting them or blessing them or fighting for them. And they had an opportunity to repent. They knew that everything that Abijah said was true. The southern kingdom of Judah was still faithfully preserving their temple and the priesthood, and they, and they were still doing the things that God had called them to do. Even though they were not wholly given over to the Lord and following him, they were obedient in so many ways, so much more so than the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's what happened in verses 13 through 21. We read now, Jeroboam had sent troops, that's the northern kingdom, Jeroboam had sent troops around to the rear so that while he was in front of Judah, the ambush was behind them. Judah turned and saw that they were being attacked at both front and rear. Now notice what they did. Then they cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. The priests blew their trumpets, and the men of Judah raised their battle cry. And at the sound of their battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The Israelites fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hands. Abijah and his men inflicted heavy losses on them so that there were 500,000 casualties among Israel's able men. The men of Israel were subdued on that occasion, and the men of Judah were victorious because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. That's pretty encouraging, right? Verse 19, Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took from him the towns of Bethel, Jeshna, Ephraim, and with their surrounding villages. And Jeroboam did not regain power during the time of Abijah, And the Lord struck him down, and he died. We go on to read there in verse 21, But Abijah grew in strength. He married 14 wives and had 22 sons and 16 daughters. Why did that happen? That happened because they turned to God. Again, we saw that they humbled themselves under Rehoboam, and God spared them. Now they find themselves in a conflict against people who are disobeying God, they are outnumbered. What did we see those numbers were? Was it like 800 to 400? I think they were outnumbered two to one, if I remember. Right? 800,000 able troops, right? Against 400,000 fighting men? Uh, two to one. And yet they inflicted such casualties, I think it said 500,000 out of the 800,000 were killed. They left with 300,000. That's pretty impressive, wouldn't you agree? Did they do it or did God do it? God did that work. God did that work because they cried out to him. And there's a wonderful lesson there. No matter what you're facing, you cry out to God, God will fight for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? So again, we look at our nation, we look at the things we're going through. Are we crying out to God? God can fix this mess. We just need to cry out to him. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, we have to live in a blue state. Oh, this is awful. Oh, my goodness. You know, the progressives have control of every, you know, Oh, they're, they're, they're wicked, corrupt people. That may be the case, but God is in control. And you can cry out to God, and God can fix it. I'm so happy about that truth. It gives me hope. People accuse me of being an optimist. I'm not an optimist. I'm a realist. God is real. And his ways are awesome when we turn to him cry out to him for help. Well, the army of Israel, they tried to ambush the army of Judah, but Abijah and the army of Judah cried out to the Lord, and then he delivered them. Abijah regained significant territory from the kingdom of Israel, and he struck down and killed Jeroboam. Uh, The Lord struck down and and killed Jeroboam, the king of Israel. You can read about that in 1 Kings 14. But this man, Abijah, married 14 wives, had 22 sons and 16 daughters. Now, he didn't do all that in three years. (laughs) Uh, He had obviously had some of those wives and children before he became king. But for three years that he was king, things were looking up. But the record of all Abijah's other accomplishments has been preserved. Look at uh, the last verse there. The other events of Abijah's reign, what he did, and what he said, are written in the annotations of the prophet Edo. And Abijah rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Asa who was a good king. Asa his son succeeded him as king and in the days and in his days the country was at peace for 10 years. Again, I hope that's a prophecy. Things can turn around if we cry out to God. They really can. They did for them. The record of all of his accomplishments has been preserved and we're reading them now that, of course the book of 1st Kings records Abijah's reign. In 1 Kings chapter 15, here you have excerpts from the annals of the kings of, of Judah, which is in First and Second Chronicles. And there is another historical work from this time period mentioned in Scripture, similar to the one we mentioned before, the annotations of the prophet Edo. It may be an excerpt from the records of Edo the seer the deal with genealogies, but in either case, these were the prophets who were recording the history of that day. You know, it's a good thing about having prophets record history, because they record history from God's perspective. If you get your history from such awful organizations as that 1619 organization, or you start to get your history from revisionists and communists and socialists and progressives and people who are trying to undermine the very fabric of our culture and our society, you're getting it from a tainted source. You might as well drink Poison. Poison. It's better to get your history from prophets. By that I mean, get your history from godly men and women who tell the truth about what actually happened. There's lots of good history out there. Unfortunately, a lot of it's being tamped down and drowned out and canceled and deplatformed. But the truth of the matter is, I've lived through 57 years of it. I remember most of it, and I'll tell you what. What they're saying happened, in many cases, didn't happen the way they're saying it happened. I remember a number of years ago, I was at a book sale out in Lancaster, many years ago. And I'm a fan of U.S. history. So we were at a book sale, and I saw a couple of history books for like a buck or two. So I picked them up. And uh, they were published during the time that Herbert Hoover was president. So that would have been like about within 50 years of the Civil War. And as I read history written at that time, I guess in the 30s, 20s, Yeah, 1920s, late 20s, early 30s. When I read that, I was shocked and amazed at how much history had changed. And of course, it hasn't changed. It's been revised. So get your history from good sources. Because those that ignore history and the problems that history shows us, right, the mistakes of history, are doomed to repeat it. We know this. They're doomed to repeat those mistakes. Well, Abijah died knowing that he had failed to bring complete and total peace between Judah and Israel. He had reigned for just three years after all. He rested with his fathers in Sheol, waiting the coming judgment. But his son Asa succeeded Abijah as king of Judah. And then they experienced ten years of peace. It's hard to remember what ten years of peace looks like. But I have hope. And I hope you're encouraged to know a few things. One, we need to humble ourselves and cry out to God and ask him to heal our land. We saw that recently. I believe that was in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We need to cry out. We know that God will be faithful to us. And we need to see God bring that great awakening in our generation that we might experience the goodness of God in our culture and in our land. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these lessons from history. As we study the reigns of the kings of Judah, Lord God, may we not be doomed to repeat these mistakes that we've seen in our past. And may we find a culture and a a large number of people in our society today willing to hear the truth, respond to the truth, submit themselves to the truth, to repent and cry out to you that we might be abundantly blessed as we believe in the cross of Jesus Christ who died on that cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven and ever lives to make intercession on our behalf with the promise that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Oh Lord, to as many as received you, we know you have called them to be sons and daughters of God, children of God. To those who have believed on your name, Lord, we ask that all those here today and all those listening online and all those we come in contact who hear the gospel would respond by repenting and giving their hearts to you, that they might be blessed and that our nation might be blessed. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.